Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. I hope last session was a good enough introduction to Romanticism, because now it is time to blow it all up. Um, the three philosophers we're going to discuss today, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard, are some of the most controversial figures in the history of philosophy, and I am frankly a little bit overwhelmed at the prospect of trying to teach all three of them in an hour and 40 minutes. Um, so you'll have to bear with me if just it fails miserably and we don't understand any of this and I manage to do horrible injustice to all three of them. I know these are also philosophers that many people get passionate about. Nietzsche especially is a favorite of my students and of young people generally. Um, that's potentially problematic and I always like to include lots of caveats when I teach Nietzsche and unfortunately I will not have the time for quite so many caveats today um, so we're just gonna tackle them and hope that all goes well um, but enough preface and nonsense we definitely need to talk about these folks so let's start with Schopenhauer um, he is in fact the easiest or the earliest of our thinkers maybe the easiest as well I mean he has less to say than the others at least in our readings um, we are reading just a chunk of The World of Will and Idea, which I had learned as world, world is Will and Representation, but I guess definition or translations change on that front. Um, and we get this little chunk, which is headed as the metaphysics of the love of the sexes. And I want to sort of, like, not get too deep into the nitty-gritty of what Schopenhauer is saying here, in part because I don't know Schopenhauer that well. Like, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, I could definitely do whole classes on. Schopenhauer, this is virtually the first time that I'm reading him, even if I know his thought pretty cold just from discussing him in other contexts. Um, but what I want to emphasize here is that Schopenhauer, too, is part of a... 19th century tradition that we need to be kind of attentive to. Um, we talked quite a bit about sort of the rise of Romanticism in the last lecture, and I don't want to get too deep into the history here, but there is one major, major intellectual discovery and change that has seriously influenced the modern world and is going to very much haunt all of our philosophers going before going forward, as well as Freud and, like, all the other quasi-philosophers we're going to talk about, um, by which I mean Darwin. So, The Origin of Species was published in the early to mid-19th century, if I'm not mistaken, um, and it had a very serious impact on the intellectual world at large. It was a huge bestseller, like, basically the first of its kind, that there was this book that, you know, was intended for a primarily scientific audience, and then, like, it didn't matter, and everybody read it. Um, it was hugely popular in its time, in addition to being, you know, a, a groundbreaking work of, like, natural history at this point, which, because that's what they still would have referred to it as, rather than biological history or evolution or anything like that. Um, but I also want to stress that because it was so freaking widespread, because it was so incredibly popular, as much as Darwin's ideas of evolution, which we all generally in, here in the 20th century tend to agree with and tend to appreciate as scientific fact, um, in the 19th century, a lot of people carried away Darwin's ideas in a distorted fashion or would mess with them and came to some pretty wonky conclusions. 
Um, the origin of species, as much as it was this important, you know, text for scientists, text for biologists, very much got translated into a sort of widespread European movement. Um, people would read this and, and then apply it to all sorts of things that it really wasn't talking about. Specifically, this was the start of, quote, social Darwinism and the beginning of the eugenics movement. Um, and there is some weird, nasty shit that comes out of this. Like, some of the worst ideas in the history of humanity, or at the very least, some of the worst justifications for already existing bad ideas, came out of misinterpretations of this text. Um, so, to give one particularly noxious example, um, there was a whole bunch of people in the 19th century who, following the origin of species and following their, their cursory, shitty readings of Darwin, um, had concluded that, there, that one could detect the value of a human being according to their physical characteristics. Um, and one particularly weird group of people decided that the best way to measure the, you know, awesomeness of a human being, of their genetic makeup, was to examine the size and shape of their skulls. Um, this is the discipline that eventually evolved into phrenology. And I probably, if you have heard of phrenology at all, you know exactly where I'm going. Like, the, the practice of phrenology basically boiled down to a bunch of people with forceps looking at various skulls from various races and then making incredibly condescending observations that were very much kind of just confirming biases that were already in place. So all these white dudes are looking at white skulls. They're like, yes, yeah, you can see how according to the size and the shape of the skull, the white skull is so much more awesome and so much more, you know, evolved than, say, the Negro skull or the Mongoloid skull. And these are the terms they're using. Like, um, I want to express how utterly repellent and disgusting this practice was. Um, and as a consequence, this just became more fuel for the fire. Like, when people were saying, you know, slavery is a justified practice, they were like, well, take a look at what phrenology has to say about it. Clearly, white people were meant to rule over black people. Like, it's just so gross and so awful all of the time. And, you know, the 19th century didn't need any help being freaking racist. Like, as much as we associate racism with the atrocities of the 20th century, especially Hitler and the Holocaust, like, that was all very much in its early stages in the 19th century. Um, largely because of this kind of social Darwinist movement. This idea that we, as a species, should be breeding out certain races or genetic characteristics. Like... Oh my gosh, Ugh, this is gross, awful stuff, but it needs to be talked about because Schopenhauer is kind of doing this. He is not doing it as horribly as the phrenologists. He is not doing it for obviously racial means, but he's using the same kind of reasoning here. And I want to stress this. Notice how he is talking about love in this chunk of the metaphysics of the love of the sexes. Like the very first line, all love, however ethereally it may bear itself, is rooted in the sexual impulse alone. 
Now again, part of what's getting carried away from the, the origin of species by philosophers and sort of non-biologists, though people who are a little bit more intelligent than the crazy people who think that this is a great opportunity for genocide, um, a lot of people are sort of using this to justify psychological behavior, like Freud is definitely an inheritor of this origin of species social Darwinist tradition as much as anyone else is. Um, but notice that, you know, the, the sort of fundamental presupposition that we are going to be looking at a lot in Freud, namely that sexuality is sort of, you know, the fundamental impulse underlying all human activity, is present here in Schopenhauer as well. Um, Schopenhauer's whole argument here, the, like the whole structure of the world of will and idea, will and representation, is kind of this argument that, you know, human instinct is basically the same kind of guiding star to human development as what Hegel would have said about history and Geist, the, the spirit. Um, he is going to be reinterpreting history according to this sort of quasi-Darwinist instinct thinking, um, in the same way that Hegel was interpreting it according to this sort of transcendent guide that was bringing human beings to their apotheosis, in a sense. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I want to stress here is that this isn't questioned. Like, Schopenhauer takes this for granted. Um, and I, I want to kind of point out that, like, this is something that very much, again, characterized the 19th century, very much informed intellectualism and philosophy in the 19th century, and we are missing the, the moment, the change. Um, like, we've gone from, you know, Kant and, uh, and Rousseau and, and all of those thinkers who were very much sort of arguing that, like, rationality was the fundamental thing guiding human activity, um, and that, you know, this was, that humanity was, at its end, at the end of the day, a rational animal, to Schopenhauer immediately assuming the opposite and not even bothering to give us an explanation for, for why this is. And again, that's just how incredibly important Darwin and the sort of thinkers leading up to Darwin were. Um, so I want to sort of see this as both result of that kind of tradition, as well as being sort of the impetus that's solidifying this tradition. Like to the point that today, to say that sex isn't the primary motivation for all human activity is a really tough thing to get across. Like if I said that, you know, I if I say in response to the question, why did you do acts? that I did it for unselfish reasons, most people, at least in our time, are going to seriously question that. They'll be like, no, you can't do things for unselfish reasons. You've just, you know, tricked yourself into thinking that you're being unselfish when in fact you are making yourself happy in some other way. Like, our culture is so trenchantly in favor of this position, in favor of this sort of assumption, that we can't even see past it. Like, we can't even question it. Um, and this is why, you know, we have this assumption earlier on in the, you know, 18th and 19th century sort of developing that humans are selfish, that humans are, are negative, and that rationality can conquer this selfishness in human beings. And by the 19th century, we have, you know, all of this selfishness is rooted in the sexual instinct, the way that Schopenhauer and Nietzsche are talking about it here to the point in the 20th century that we literally do not conceive, do not entertain the possibility that human activity is free of these fundamental motives, that you can act without 
instinct and sexuality being the defining characteristics of your of your decisions. Um, just keep that in mind. Like we're skipping steps here because we can't cover every single really important development that happened. And a lot of this is more than just philosophy. Like I said, Darwin was not a philosopher in the strict sense of the term. Like he was a biologist. He was a scientist. And at this point, they are two distinct dif disciplines. Maybe in some other version of this class, class I would teach part of the origin of species, because I feel like that's a really important component to the development of thought in the 19th century. For our purposes now, just notice, you know, we are getting a radically different view of love than we saw with Goethe, and that's largely because we've skipped a step. Um, we went from this romantic, all-consuming notion of love as being this passion that just overwhelms and overmasters us, that does in fact bleed into a lot of these ideas, like we're going to see Schopenhauer and Nietzsche riffing on some of this, um, but at the same time it's paired with this total demythologization of love, this total detranscendent quality of love, this love as being a purely physical, purely instinctual, purely sexual drive. Um, and a lot of these philosophers are going to either assume that it is this purely instinctual, purely sexual drive, or they're going to really push back against it, um, as is the case with Kierkegaard. And we'll, we'll see that in a little bit. Um, so again, right from the start of this passage, love, however ethereally it may bear itself, is rooted in the sexual impulse alone. Um, and he goes on, nay, it absolutely is only a more definitely determined, specialized, and indeed in the strictest sense individualized sexual impulse. If now, keeping this in view, one considers the important part which the sexual impulse in all its degrees and nuances plays not only on the stage and in novels, but also in the real world, where next to the love of life, it shows itself the strongest and most powerful of motives, constantly lays claim to half the powers and thoughts of the younger portion of mankind, is the ultimate goal of almost all human effort, exerts an adverse influence on the most important events, interrupts the most serious occupations every hour, sometimes embarrasses for a while even the greatest minds, does not hesitate to intrude with its trash, interfering with the negotiations of statesmen and the investigations of men in learning, knows how to slip its love letters and locks of hair and even into ministerial portfolios and philosophical manuscripts, and no less devises daily the most entangled and the worst actions, destroys the most valuable relationships, breaks the firmest bonds, demands the sacrifice sometimes of life or health, sometimes of wealth, rank, and happiness, nay, robs those who are otherwise honest of all conscience, makes those who have hitherto been faithful traitors, accordingly, on the whole, appears as a malevolent demon that strives to pervert, confuse, and overthrow everything, then one will be forced to cry, wherefore all this noise? Notice, that was, that was all one sentence there. Like, Schopenhauer is getting real worked up here in emphasizing that love is just sex, and sex pervades every act of human beings, like the statesman and the, the, the conscientious. It's all around us all of the time. It turns the faithful into traitors, and it embarrasses even the greatest minds. Like... It is the ultimate goal of almost all human effort, he says. And yet at the same time, he calls it trash. That this sexuality is somehow still, in the 19th century mind, base and like pointless and dumb and wrong. Like We still have this assumption that sex is beneath us. 
It's just now not just beneath us, but it also overmasters us. Like, this is definitely in common with the Romantics, and it is probably no accident or coincidence that the Romantic idea of love is this powerful, passionate, overpowering phenomenon, something that, like, totally takes over an otherwise rational person and drives them to distraction or madness or suicide, in the case of Werther, um, at the same time is something base and small and gross, something that is, again, beneath us in some sense. Now, to some degree, the Romantics would disagree with that. They would say, you know, yes, it is transcendently powerful in addition to being overmastering and passionate and so on and so forth. In some, some of the later Romantics, however, they would totally agree. Yes, love is something that controls us, and it's also kind of dumb and wrong. Like, you read Byron's Don Juan, and you'll get this dual sense of it. It is petty and base and silly and stupid, but at the same time, it is also something that masters us, something that makes us into puppets and comical gestures, like something that turns us into children, in a sense. Um, and Schopenhauer also gets at both sides of this. In addition to calling it trash, in addition to sort of calling it just noise, asking us why is why is it so important? Where why is it so noisy? Why is it you know why is it so significant in our lives? Why does it interfere with every you know notable accomplishment we try to have? He also adds, it is no trifle that is in, it is in question here. On the contrary, the importance of the matter is quite proportionate to the seriousness and ardor of the effort. The ultimate end of all love affairs, whether they are played in sock or cothernus, is really more important than all other ends of human life, and it is therefore quite worthy of the profound seriousness with which everyone pursues it. That which is decided by it is nothing less than the composition of the next generation. And note, too, the assumptions here. For Schopenhauer, there are only two impulses in life. The greater impulse is the impulse to keep on living, like we will not have sex if it endangers our lives in some way, but this is literally number two, and it is significant insofar as it is about the composition of the next generation. And this is what Schopenhauer is going to be riffing on for literally the rest of the text. Um, how, you know, the whole business of falling in love and being sexually attracted to people, all of the, the folder role that we bind into this, all the silliness, all of the, you know, ethereal notions of this love as a transcendent feeling of something that makes us better than we are, you know, all of those writers talking about the nobility of love, whether it's, you know, in Plato talking about how, you know, love is searching for transcendent beauty, or in Dante, where it is this Christian transcendence and it can save us, like, send us away from damnation and sin, to Goethe's Werther getting so caught up by this and, and feeling this nobility of emotion that does, in fact, overpower him. All of this for Schopenhauer is mere illusion. It is something that just distracts us. Um, and it's fine that it does that, because at the end of the day, the illusion that it is something greater than pure sexuality is to sort of mirror the fact that it is, in fact, sexuality that is so important. Notice that for Schopenhauer, all of the, the other stuff, all of the statesmanship, all of the poetry, all of the, you know, architecture and accomplishments and the greatest feats of human engineering, like, all of that is actually window dressing for survival and sexuality. 
human beings are, despite their rationality, despite their philosophical accomplishments, despite their flights of fancy, despite their literature and culture and poetry and civilization and science and so on, at the end of the day, a human being is an animal and a sexual animal. And all of the other stuff will always take the second chair to that. And I want to kind of stress this, because this is new. Like, this is very much a 19th century invention, in a sense. Like, as much as the, the pessimists and the, quote, realists of the 18th century, the, the writers who very much emphasized, you know, humans as this political animal, this, you know, being who is fundamentally selfish and fundamentally out for themselves, you know, as, as much as you've got your Adam Smiths and your John Locke's and your Hobbes's and, you know, the rest of those... They very much emphasized that human beings were selfish, but they were rationally selfish. And as a consequence, you could harness that energy and use it for something better. Hence all those utopian ideas of the Enlightenment. What we are looking at here is not humans are the rational animal, or humans are the civilized animal, or humans are the political animal. Schopenhauer is saying humans are animals. Period. Full stop. No qualifications need to be added here. Everything that drives animals drives humans, and everything that humans think make them better than animals are just set dressing and illusion to sort of distract them from the fact that, in fact, they are just sexual animals and they are really just interested in the preservation of the species at the end of the day. Generation is everything for Schopenhauer. He is not ashamed of it, but he is also very much not entranced by it, not romanticizing it, not idealizing it. Um, this is what human beings do. All of the poetry is just sublimated sex. All of the civilization, sublimated sex. All of the, you know, grand enterprises and accomplishments, science and technology, philosophy, literature, sublimated sex. That's okay for him. Um, so, again, all of the all the business of love, all of the distractions of love, all of the, you know, getting worked up over a person and imagining that they're perfect, all the courtly love tradition stuff where it's like, oh, my lady is the greatest of all ladies and she possesses all of the virtues and I will love her forever, eternally. Like, Schopenhauer's like, bullshit. You're not going to love her eternally, ever. Like, eternally is not on the table for human beings. Um, it is purely instinct that are that is driving you to this person. It is instinct that is coloring your opinion of this person. It is instinct that is literally pulling the wool over your eyes, causing you to think that this person is, you know, greater than every other person, even though there's no reason to think that that's the case. Instinct is doing this so you will hook up with her and have children. And that's the only thing that instinct cares about, and that is, at the end of the day, the only thing that you care about as well, because you are just your instincts. Um, this is basically the triumph of scientific explanation of love as a chemical process, in short. Um, like, we have not gotten to the point where it's like, yes, love is just the drug that your brain produces to make you, you know, reproduce, but essentially we're at the same point here. Um, Schopenhauer is saying that love is just a fancy word we've come up with to describe what is essentially instinct driving us to copulate, to reproduce. Um, and he is quick to use Darwinist-style uh, explanations behind this. Um, so notice, 
you know, the, the big full paragraph on page 124, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's just huge. Um, but notice, the he starts it off with, that which presents itself in the individual consciousness as sexual impulse in general, without being directed toward a definite individual of the other sex, is in itself and apart from the phenomenon, simply the will to live. Um, but, skip down a little further, yet that in any... But, that, but yet that in every case of falling in love, however objective and sublime this admiration may appear, what alone is looked to is the production of an individual of a definite nature is primarily confirmed by the fact that the essential matter is not the reciprocation of love, but possession, that is, the physical enjoyment. So when you want sex with someone, as much as it presents itself to you as, you know, I want my, my beloved to fall in love with me as well, and I want to, you know, like, experience this union of our two souls, and I want us to experience this transcendent feeling, this feeling of an eternal passion that will, you know, transcend time and space, and it will command our fidelity and our adoration of one another forever, and it will always bind us together. You know, at the end of the day, we don't care about that. We say that we care about that to justify it to ourselves, to sort of placate our rationality, um, to placate our religious impulses, or to placate our sense of, of wanting more from life than just life itself. But notice that Schopenhauer very much gets to the heart of it by stressing, you know, we don't care whether the other person actually cares about us or not. What we care about is, can we have sex with them? Uh, we do not want reciprocation, we want possession. And he emphasizes, the certainty of the former can therefore by no means console us for the want of the latter. On the contrary, in such a situation, many a man has shot himself. Um, think of Werther. I couldn't be with Charlotte, and therefore I kill myself. What Schopenhauer is saying is Werther is not acting out of some kind of noble impulse. He is not, you know, giving vent to the frustrations of his soul. He is not express, expressing some meaningful truth about himself. What he is saying is, I can't be with her, therefore I cannot have a kid with her, therefore I have no reason to keep on living. Bam. Gone. And that's all that matters to him. Charlotte does love him. Like, that's emphasized by Goethe. Like, they have this moment where they share their, their sort of feelings with one another, and Charlotte is forced to admit, okay, you know, I love you, but we can't do this, so you need to leave. And Goethe's like, oh, so you love me, but we can't be together. All right, bam. And that's all that Schopenhauer cares about. If, in fact, he wanted reciprocation, he would endure. He would continue to live. He would continue to, you know, live knowing that Charlotte, in fact, loved him and, and feel his consolation in that. But he doesn't feel consolation in that. Instead, he just feels this drive to, you know, have sex, to make this physical. And therefore, Schopenhauer concludes he didn't really care about reciprocation. He didn't really care about Charlotte. He cared about having sex so they could reproduce and give birth to the next generation. That this particular child shall be begotten is, although unknown to the parties concerned, the true end of the whole love story. The manner in which it is attained is a secondary consideration. Now, however loudly persons of lofty and sentimental soul, and especially those who are in love, may cry out here about the gross realism of my view, they are yet in error. For is not the definite determination of the individualities of the next generation a much higher and more worthy end than those exuberant feelings and super-sensible soap bubbles of, their, of theirs? Nay, among earthly aims, can there be one which is greater or more important? 
It alone corresponds to the profoundness with which passionate love is felt, to the seriousness with which it appears, and the importance which it attributes even to the trifling details of its sphere and occasion. Notice that Schopenhauer is doing both things. He is saying, we dream up all of the significance behind our love, and it is just dreams. It is just illusion. It is just super-sensible soap bubbles, he calls it, ready to burst at the slightest inclination. But at the end of the day, the importance isn't exaggerated. The second generation, the generation that comes after us, reproduction is in fact this grave, this serious, this important a task. We just somehow can't see it that way. The sexuality takes this huge precedence for us, and we have to dress it up in illusion, in dream, in language, in nonsense, in order for us to actually do what needs to be done, namely bring on the next generation. Um, so, this is weird, I want to stress. And there's one other dimension that we really haven't explored that we absolutely need to talk about, and it's only going to get more important in the weeks to come, especially in our next class when we talk about Freud and Sartre. And what I want to stress here, what I want to sort of introduce here, what I want to focus on here, is that Schopenhauer claims that these people are deluded. They are suffering from an illusion. As he says, that this ch particular child shall be begotten is, although unknown to the parties concerned, the true end of the whole love story. What is emphasized by Schopenhauer and what will set a dangerous precedent for the rest of the world, like Schopenhauer is not the person to start this. Again, there's some Darwin mixed in here, there's some Enlightenment philosophy mixed in here, there's a lot of stuff that's bringing us to this point. But Schopenhauer is the first of our philosophers to really give voice to this idea Namely, people can be mistaken about what it is they actually want. See, again, up until now, we've largely said that human beings are rational animals. They are free. They have, you know, they can express their own will. Um, virtually no one has disagreed with this, although we have gotten at this point Goethe saying that, you know, like through the mouth of Virtue, he expresses the idea that we can be mentally ill. We can, in fact, you know, be deluded or be sick in the mind. We can be overcome by our feelings, by our passions. We can lose our connection to rationality and therefore to our free will because we are overcome by our experiences in some way. Schopenhauer takes this through the, not, to the logical next step. You, since instinct and not rationality is the driving force in human behavior, since you know we are all at all times driving towards both our survival on the one hand and our sexuality on the other, all of that other stuff that we talk about is at the end of the day set dressing, is at the end of the day illusion, and therefore we don't know what we are talking about. We are pretending, and we don't know that we are pretending. Now, this may seem like a fairly unimportant idea, but it gives rise to this entire new branch of study and discussion in philosophy and elsewhere, where a person can be wrong about who they are, about what they think, about what they believe, and about why they are doing what they are doing. We have gone from, I am a rational being, I want X, therefore I do Y, to... 
you want X, but you don't know it. And your rationality will conjure up, after the fact, a justification for doing Y because of this secret want X. I want to reproduce. But in my mind, I can't know that I want to reproduce because it is traumatizing or upsetting or socially unacceptable or because it doesn't actually like abide by my rationality. So I conjure up this explanation. Oh, I love this woman and it is transcendent and it is you know, going to be an eternal emotion that will always endure and the two of us will always love each other and what we are giving rise to is not you know, some temporary transitional experience but actually this profound permanent experience and therefore I have sex with her. At the end of the day, Schopenhauer is saying, you know, we don't need the middle term, thanks. We don't need the elaborate explanations. We don't need the self-justification. We don't need the, the whole rational, you know, going out of your way to say, I am, you know, actually doing this for more important reasons. No, you don't know why you're doing it. Why you're doing it is because of sex. Because you want sex. Because you want to reproduce. Because you have this instinct that nature has implanted deeply inside of you. And yet, because of our society, we cannot admit to ourselves that that's the reason we're doing things. Therefore, and this is important, Schopenhauer can tell you, I know better than you do what you are thinking and why you are doing what you are doing. I, as an expert, as a trained philosopher, or indeed a trained psychologist or trained therapist or trained analyst going forward, can tell you that you are wrong about yourself. I know you better than you know yourself. This is dangerous. And we'll see why in a little while. And not only because of the whole social Darwinism, phrenology nonsense, which, again, boils down to, oh, you are an inferior being, and therefore I know you better than you know yourself. Again, so much hubris, let's move on, because I don't want to get totally distracted by this and end up just standing on my, sense, my soapbox for the rest of this lecture. Um... The other thing I want to describe is sort of how he explains this. Like, he does sort of draw this out. Um, on page 128, he sort of goes into significant detail about the process by which we end up satisfying our sexual impulse by way of the illusion. On 127, he emphasizes the illusion, like this whole, you know, it is good for myself to do X, and, and you know, it is good for me to fall in love with this person, even though it really isn't. He emphasizes that the... This illusion is instinct, um, and that really we are only striving for satisfaction of the sexual impulse. But he also noticed notes down at the end of this extremely long multi-page paragraph, um, towards the bottom of page 128, he says, The character of instinct is here so perfectly present, thus an action which seems to be in accordance with the conception of an end, and yet is entirely without such a conception, that he who is drawn by that illusion also often abhors the end which alone guides it, procreation, and would like to hinder it. Thus it is in the case of almost all illicit love affairs. In accordance with the character of the matter which has been explained, every lover will experience a marvelous disillusion after the pleasure he has at last attained, and will wonder that what was so longingly desired accomplishes nothing more than every other sexual satisfaction, so that he does not see himself much benefited by it. That wish was related to all his other wishes as the species is related to the individual, thus as the infinite to the finite. The satisfaction, on the other hand, is really only for the benefit of the species, and thus does not come within the consciousness of the individual, who, inspired by the will of the species, here severed or served an end with every kind of sacrifice, which was not his own end at all. 
Notice what Schopenhauer is implying here. We have stressed elsewhere that, like, there are certain behaviors that are more inclined, or that we are more inclined to do, and, you know, Nietzsche's going to especially draw this out, like, that, you know, um, we, that men have certain objectives while women have other objectives because men can, you know, have as many babies as they want while women cannot. Um, you know, this is... I'm so frustrated by all of this. Um, but yes, just as he's going to stress a little bit later on page 129, you know, faithfulness in marriage is with the man artificial because, again, men are going to have sex with as many women as possible in order to pass their genes along. While with the woman it is natural, and thus adultery on the part of the woman is much less pardonable than on the part of the man. Um, he's stressing, you know, our various biological situations. The man just has to, like, disseminate seed while the woman is going to, in fact, take the seed and then gestate a child for nine months, and therefore it is in the woman's best interest to sort of capture a man, bind, her, bind him to her. You know, all of this is basically to... Uh, basically to argue that human beings are, again, acting according to their instincts, which are prescribed by nature, therefore anything that they believe is going on outside of that is just illusion to sort of protect their reproductive responsibilities. Um, the marvelous disillusion here is we build each other up. We, you know, say to ourselves, you know, this is the one person for me, my soulmate. But then when we have sex with them, that all disappears because that was never what we were actually after. What Schopenhauer is saying is we build up this notion and then it disappears after sexuality because we have accomplished what instinct was actually telling us to do. If the actual desire was the one buried in our subconscious, this, you know, you have to have sex in order to reproduce, in order to assure the genetic code is passed on to the next generation, once you've done that, you're done. And therefore, all of the build-up, all of the, oh, she is the one for me, we are, you know, bound together, this is eternal love, it just vanishes. It, it doesn't exist. It never had any significance. It never existed in any real sense. It was always illusion. And when, in fact, the underlying motivation is accomplished, the rationalization that we did also disappears. The underlying desire is fulfilled, and therefore we don't need it anymore. And so we reject it, and we move on. We just ignore all of that. We dispose of it. Human love is a disposable illusion to guarantee reproduction, in short. That's what Schopenhauer is saying here. And notice... Notice how nasty this is. Like, notice how... realistic Schopenhauer would call it, and yet how sort of out of sync it is with all that we've said about love up until this point. Like, on the one hand, I suspect we all kind of agree with Schopenhauer. We say to ourselves, yeah, we, we just talk it up. Like, it's all just bullshit. If we would all just be honest with ourselves, we would just have sex with whoever we want and call it a day. But is that really true? Like, again, Schopenhauer is taking these presuppositions for granted. He is assuming that instinct dominates us, that our rationality is secondary to our instinct, that we are just deluding ourselves. And he cites as evidence the fact that by consummating, we are no longer interested in others. But is that really true? Like, 
in all of those courtly love traditions, wasn't it the case that, you know, maybe you would have sex with a woman, maybe you wouldn't, but it wouldn't matter at the end of the day. Like, Andreas Capellanus doesn't seem to think that that's terribly important to the courtly love process. Like, yes, Ibn Sina drives home the fact that, yes, it is base to want to just, you know, concupiscently love one another, but if anything, that just drives home all the more significantly the fact that we love even when sex isn't necessarily the end point. Schopenhauer is making an assumption and then picking details and picking rationalizations that justify his assumption in exactly the same way as he's describing our, you know, trumped up ideas of love as being this rationalization of an sort of foregoing desire. He is taking the consequences and arguing that the only way we could reach those consequences is through this particular series of events, rather than saying, you know, this is all necessarily and rationally follows. He is saying there is no other impulse besides instinct, this is my presupposition, and I will explain the phenomena of love given that presupposition, given the fact that it can't possibly exist. He is rejecting love as an assumption, and then explaining how that makes sense. He is not, in fact, arguing for it. I want to stress that, because it's especially obvious in the next section, like when he starts talking about this, you know, the different behaviors of men and women. We have to remark here, he says at the top of page 129, that by nature man is inclined to inconstancy and love woman to constancy. The love of the man sinks perceptibly from the moment it has obtained satisfaction. Almost every other woman charms him more than the one he already possesses. He longs for variety. The love of the woman, on the other hand, increases just from that moment. This is a consequence of the aim of nature, which is directed to the maintenance, and therefore to the greatest possible increase of the species. The man can easily beget over a hundred children a year. The woman, on the contrary, with however many men, can yet only bring one child a year into the world, leaving twin births out of account. Therefore, the man always looks about after other women. The woman, again, sticks firmly to the one man, for nature moves her instinctively and without reflection to retain the nourisher and protector of the future offspring. Accordingly, faithfulness in marriage is with the man artificial, with the woman it is natural, and thus adultery on the part of the woman is much less pardonable than on the part of the man, both objectively on account of the consequences and also subjectively on account of its unnaturalness. Okay. This sounds rational. It sounds reasonable. Okay, so men can have sex with as many women as they want and produce as many children as they want. Women, on the other hand, can only produce one child a year. Therefore, they are going to sort of be more constant in a relationship than men, than men will. Okay, this checks out. This makes sense. Nature would seem to suggest this. But if you actually study biology, this is 100% total bullshit. Like... This is the case in virtually every species. The man in the species, the male of the species, can deliver the seed to as many women as possible, and as many females as possible, and therefore those females will only be able to conceive like one a year, while the, the males can theoretically just spread their seed and, and produce tons and tons of babies. Sure, great, granted. But despite that, we have so many different potential relationships that exist in nature. We get stuff like the praying mantises, where the female devours the male after the production. We get the, the you know, swans who mate for life, while we have otherwise, you know, like, 
totally promiscuous behavior from other species. We get the bull seal, who impregnates, you know, dozens of women while the other male seals are just shit out of luck. Um, it's this whole wide panoply. And the fact of the matter is, you could use the exact same argumentation to present the exact opposite conclusion. What if instead we said that a female doesn't need to be faithful because she just needs somebody to impregnate her. It doesn't matter who. So therefore, she just has sleep, has sex with as many men as possible in order to just get pregnant because she doesn't give a shit. She doesn't care. She has no obligation to a man. She just needs, you know, to produce a child. Therefore, it is to her advantage to sleep with as many men as possible. And on the men, for the other hand, it is to their advantage to set outside a woman, to specifically, you know, regard her as faithful or unfaithful, and then to lock her away where no other man can get to her to guarantee that it is his seed and not anybody else's seed who is doing the job. And notice this, too, sounds rational. Hey, look, we're describing ancient relationships here. So basically what I'm saying is, this is nonsense! This kind of argumentation is nonsense, and it leads us to nonsensical conclusions. Yes, it sounds reasonable. It sounds like a proper explanation of both the things that we're observing and the conclusions that we're coming to, the circumstances that describe our society. But in fact, it's not. Either way, you could get there. We are trying to deduce motivation from action. We are trying to work backwards. And to some degree, this is what Darwin is doing as well. Like, Darwin is saying, okay, here are the species, here is the way that, you know, biology works in the world today. Therefore, let us work backwards. Let us try and get at the instincts, the assumptions, the way that nature works that would produce the situation. The difference is that Darwin backs it up by making anticipations that are then justified by observation. If, in fact, you know, there is this flower with this really long stem, then presumably there is also this bird with this really long beak, and there is. Darwin anticipates it, Darwin sees the animal, or other scientists after Darwin see the animal, and they recognize, okay, Darwin was right. This theory has given rise to expectations that can therefore be fulfilled. Schopenhauer is not doing that. Schopenhauer is saying, Based on my observations of what nature would expect from us, and based on my observations of how society is conducted, this is how nature forces us to behave in certain ways. And it doesn't. If anything, I suspect my alternative explanation, the one where men lock their women up in rooms in order to prevent other men from being able to impregnate them, and therefore guarantee their genetic material is passed on, that, if anything, sounds like the more reasonable of the two. But the fact of the matter is, both are bullshit. It doesn't matter. This reasoning is not good. And it is dangerous to make it normative. To say to yourself, therefore, we need to keep doing what we are doing. Or therefore, we need to defend the status quo. This is bad philosophy, guys. Like, not saying that Schopenhauer is a bad philosopher. These are important ideas. He's expressing a really important idea. This is obviously a very contradictory contradictory notion from what we've talked about before. It needs to be said. But the idea that Schopenhauer is saying this and that it is the only way that things can be, and it is therefore rational and 100% beyond doubt, that is wrong. And we need to be able to question these presuppositions as strongly as any of the presuppositions we've questioned up until this point. 
The fact that it agrees with the way that we see the world should, if anything, make us more skeptical, more suspicious. We should be interrogating ourselves on this one. And not with the assumption that we'll never know ourselves. That is equally dangerous. The assumption that we have some depth that we will never know leads us to assume that we don't have to worry about it. And that, too, is dangerous. I can't get into the whole depth of this. I hope that we will be able to talk about this more going forward. We do definitely need to move on. I can't spend half of my discussion on Schopenhauer. Just, no, I refuse. Let's talk about Nietzsche. Because, you know, why not? We're, you know, out of the fire and into the frying pan on this one. Just good grief. Okay. So Nietzsche. Nietzsche has a lot of things to say about love. Nietzsche has a lot of things to say about everything. Nietzsche is not a systematic philosopher. He throws darts at the wall and he sees what hits. Um, and some of them are brilliant. Like, don't get me wrong. Nietzsche is a brilliant philosopher and he has a lot of really cool things to say and people have been poring over his ideas for a long time. And one of the fundamental assumptions that he is in fact borrowing from Schopenhauer and honestly doing better than Schopenhauer is questioning established moralities with the purpose of sort of interrogating what we perceive as rational. Where Schopenhauer is saying rationality is an illusion that ultimately disguises what we actually want, Nietzsche is saying rationality is something that we say is important. Is it, though? Nietzsche is asking questions where Schopenhauer is making declarative statements. And for that reason, at least for our reading of Nietzsche, I tend to respect Nietzsche more than Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer doesn't know he's being a bad philosopher. Nietzsche does know he's being a bad philosopher, and he's doing it anyway because it's fun and because the difference between bad philosophy and good philosophy really doesn't amount to much in Nietzsche's estimation. Um, Nietzsche is concluding that if I just question everything by making wildly inflammatory statements, at the end of the day we will interrogate ourselves and we will do the work necessary. And when Nietzsche is doing that, I respect him a lot. However, Nietzsche is a complex thinker, and Nietzsche is a thinker who evolves. Nietzsche's earlier work tends to be very Socratic in style, as much as he would hate that comparison. Um, he is poking at philosophy. He is questioning it. He is offering up a multitude of potential alternatives to the established understanding of how rationality works. He is rejecting Kant. He is rejecting Christianity. He is rejecting, you know, conventional morality. He is rejecting all of these things by offering up alternatives, by interrogating, by sort of bringing out other truths, things that are also uh, true about our world and about our society questioning by interrogating the alternatives, by sh shining a spotlight on the things we don't normally notice, in short. But Nietzsche was actually deteriorating during his philosophical career. He had syphilis, and it was causing some serious brain damage. Um, and by the end of his writing career, he had written a lot that didn't entirely make sense and probably shouldn't have been published, and his sister, who was also like the executor of his estate, was sort of controlling what his output was and may have been sort of interposing her own ideas into the subject. It's really hard to sort of parse what exactly Nietzsche believed in the later stages of his life. So I want to sort of 
draw attention to this, because we are looking at a pretty wide spread of Nietzsche texts. Um, we start with his Daybreak Thoughts on the Prejudices of Morality, we move on to The Joyful Wisdom, which is the text I know as the Gay Science, uh, but the title was changed for fairly obvious reasons. Um, he moved on to Thus Spake Zarathustra, which is sort of his crowning accomplishment, his magnum opus, although whether or not that's actually true is another matter, all the way to Beyond Good and Evil and Twilight of the Idols, which are sort of in, in, at the early stages of his later career. Um, and I generally see Nietzsche's career as having three fundamental stages. In Nietzsche's early philosophy, he tends to be doing the, the poking thing, the questioning. He is throwing out ideas and just trying to see where they land, seeing what sticks. Um, questioning by way of antagonizing, in a sense. By Thus Spake Zarathustra, this sort of midpoint of his career, he is not questioning anymore. He is telling. He is presenting his alternative as a quasi-systematic philosophy in his own right. The ideas that he tends to think are the most important, ideas like the fact that there is going to be this second, you know, evolved human, the overman, the idea that God is dead, the idea that there is this eternal recurrence, these tend to get center stage in, his, in the middle part of his career, and he is building on the ideas that he has already discussed, rather than just contributing lots of piles of new ideas to, to discuss. Like, he's doing a little bit of that too, but he's getting more polemical about it. He's getting more angry about it. He's saying that what he is saying is true, rather than just saying it to see what happens. By the end of his career, which includes Beyond Good and Evil and Twilight of the Idols to some degree, although again, this is earlier in, in Nietzsche's late period, he is just shouting. He is just antagonizing everyone for the purposes of antagonization and not actually to try and push philosophy forward. It's a mess. And I want to sort of recognize this. Like, I really think that a lot of his ideas about love, especially from Daybreak and from The Joyful Wisdom, are really interesting, have a lot of really great insights that are valuable and sort of reveal our assumptions about love. But even in Thus Spake Zarathustra, he's getting preachy about it, and it's getting grating. It doesn't work as well for me as, as some of his earlier stuff. And by Beyond Good and Evil, I don't even know what to say about it. Like, I'm not even sure if he's got anything to work with. Like, some of that is because we only get the aphorisms here from Beyond Good and Evil. Like, Nietzsche frequently includes aphorisms in his writing, just like quick, witty statements, like stuff that you might find on a meme or something. You know, Nietzsche was the meme writer of the 19th century in some sense. Um, but at the same time, it's just like, yeah, it's snappy, and it sounds neat, and it does kind of make me think to some degree, but at the same time, as soon as I start thinking about it, I'm like, wait, no, that's not right. Like, it's just a mess. Um, so let's, let's sift through here. Let, let's take these, like, canapes. Let's take a couple and, and see what he has to say, and, and pick out some of the better stuff that he has to say, as well as sort of poke at some of the stuff that isn't as impressive. Let's, let's bop around a little bit here. So, first off, that first section, the value of belief in superhuman passions, we should definitely associate this with Schopenhauer. And Nietzsche definitely was a Schopenhauerian. Like, he studied Schopenhauer extensively, he liked Schopenhauer a lot, a lot of his early philosophy and a lot of his ideas are influenced by Schopenhauer. We should see here that he's saying something essentially similar where Schopenhauer is talking about love as an illusion. 
But where Schopenhauer assumes the instinct of love and assumes that it is the only possible motivation behind human behavior, notice that Nietzsche isn't as interested in, you know, propounding this idea and bombarding us with examples. Instead, notice that he's interested not so much in love as instinct as the endurance of love as instinct. And I'm going to read this whole section because it is kind of fascinating and really rather insightful and surprisingly even-handed for Nietzsche. The institution of marriage obstinately maintains the belief that love, though a passion, is yet capable of endurance. Indeed, that enduring, lifelong love can be established as the rule. Now notice, his tone is similar to Schopenhauer's. He is questioning it. He is challenging this idea. He is arguing that it is illusory in some sense. The, the term obstinately maintains the belief that love, though a passion, is yet capable of endurance. Notice how he's emphasizing love is a passion and therefore shouldn't be expected to endure, but marriage insists that it does anyway, and this seems illusory. Though tenaciously adhering to a noble belief, despite the fact that it is very often and almost as a general rule refuted, and thus constitutes a piafraus, marriage is, has bestowed upon love a higher nobility. All institutions which accord to a passion belief in its endurance and responsibility for its endurance, contrary to the nature of a passion, have raised it to a new rank. And thereafter, he who is assailed by such a passion no longer believes himself debased or endangered by it as he formerly did, but enhanced in his own eyes and those of his equals. Notice that Nietzsche is doing the reverse of what Schopenhauer is doing here. Where Schopenhauer would say, all of those higher emotions are illusions, just sort of pasted on top of your basic instinctual passion, which I assume is the only reason that you could possibly do these things. Nietzsche instead is saying, hey, passion, we generally agree, and we generally observe, do not, does not last, and love is a passion. However, where Schopenhauer would say, therefore everything else is nonsense, Nietzsche instead says, but... We also observe that we assume higher significance to this passion. When we take a passion that we would normally assume would die quickly, and instead, for whatever reason, start believing in its endurance, instead insist that our love, the passion, has to endure, we ennoble it. We make it something bigger than it is. We make it something more important than it is. We raise it to a new rank. And notice that Nietzsche is not judgmental about this. Not yet, anyway. Where Schopenhauer calls this illusion, Nietzsche seems earnestly interested in the phenomenon. We are, in fact, ennobling our passion of love. Think of institutions and customs which have created out of the fiery abandonment of the moment perpetual fidelity. Out of the enjoyment of anger, perpetual vengeance. Out of despair, perpetual mourning. Out of a single and unpremeditated word, perpetual obligation. Instead of just focusing on love here and decrying it as, a, as an illusion, instead of saying that all of these you know, elevated passions are illusory, he is instead stressing there is something ennobling about this process. We take anger and turn it into vengeance. We take passionate love and we turn it into fidelity. We take passionate, you know, despair and turn it into mourning. We take the feeling, which is necessarily passing, something that is transitory, something that is going to come and go, and instead we insist upon it. We fix ourselves to it. We stick ourselves to it. 
We say to ourselves, I will feel anger even when normally it would subside. I refuse to be anything but angry I, until I fulfill my vengeance. Likewise, I refuse to feel any de sort of degeneration of love. I insist on loving a person even long after I normally would stop. And in doing so, I am rationally elevating the passion, rationally committing myself to the passion, and making it something more. This transformation, Nietzsche says, has each time introduced a very great deal of hypocrisy and lying into the world. But each time too, and at this cost, it has introduced a new superhuman concept which elevates mankind. This I find so insightful. Where Schopenhauer was like, oh, it's just an illusion, and it just debases us, and we're just hiding from ourselves, Nietzsche is saying no. Yes, it is hypocritical. Yes, it is lying. Yes, we are forcing ourselves to be something we are not. Yes, we are deceiving ourselves. Yes, it is to some degree illusion. But where Nietzsche admits this, he also says, because of this, at this cost, it also elevates us. Love is not just an illusion for Nietzsche, or at least not here. Love is an illusion that we describe to ourselves to justify the passion that we feel, but we also make our passion into something more than just a passion. The transcendent love of Dante and of Goethe and of all of these philosophers of Christianity, that's not just a lie. It's also a truth. We turned love into something else. We are not just animals. We become more than animals when we choose to do these things, Nietzsche is saying. It is hypocrisy. It is lying. It is illusion. It becomes true. And this new superhuman concept makes human beings better than they were before. This is what I mean by the genius of Nietzsche. When he is at his, at his best, when he is on his A-game, when he is not trying to shape our opinions, not prescribing, but instead just looking at the world and trying to understand it, trying to recognize what is going on, we get this kind of insight, and it's wonderful. This is why Nietzsche is one of the most profound philosophers of the 19th century and why people continue to admire him into the 20th and 21st. He deserves it when he's, you know, behaving himself. We do, however, have to recognize that he is occasionally less careful about the way that he is talking about it, but we'll get there. Let's instead jump down a little bit. Let's look to the most dangerous kind of unlearning, one of his little snappy aphorisms. One begins by unlearning how to love others and ends by no longer finding anything lovable in oneself. This is another one of his sneaky ones. And again, he just knocks it out here, and it's so ambiguous and so vague, so vague that it's easy to read into it here. But notice, too, if we do read into it, the sort of conclusions we come to. When I read this, I thought of the symposium, especially. Again, 
unlearning how to love others, on the one hand, smacks of the sort of Buddhist or, you know, spiritualizing of love that Plato talks about in the Symposium, where it's like, okay, so, you know, you start your process of understanding love by falling in love with other people, but eventually you no longer are interested in them physically, and you're interested in them mentally or spiritually, and then you're not even interested in them specifically, but you're interested in the mental spirituality of all people. This, to some degree, sounds like unlearning in Nietzsche's language, unlearning how to love others. But notice that where Plato keeps going on, so, you know, now we don't love just the one person, but we love everybody. Now we don't just love physical qualities, but everybody's mental and spiritual qualities. And we are ultimately on the way to loving capital B beauty itself. Notice that Nietzsche acknowledges this here and recharacterizes it. By loving capital B beauty, we get further and further and further away from ourselves. And notice that by characterizing it as unlearning, rather than, you know, learning, as though we are actually degenerating instead of progressing, we are, at the end of the day, not just doing something, you know, important or significant or, you know, meaningful in, in the progress of learning to love, but we are also alienating ourselves and alienating everybody else. Like, as much as this is not explicitly what Nietzsche is saying, and I am certainly reading into the text here, the suggestion here is pretty clear. By unlearning how to love others, by sort of transcending human love in this context, we also transcend our humanity. We also become something other to ourselves. And I think Nietzsche is observant for pointing that out. It is dangerous to suggest this without any context or explanation. It certainly leads us to a wide variety of potential conclusions. Um, but again, it's thought-provoking. It leads us to re-understand, recontextualize, relearn what Plato and Aristotle were doing on, to us. Relearn what all of those philosophers who were saying love should be transcendent, what they were actually saying, what that actually means, what that looks like in practice. Now, let's move forward, shall we? Let's jump to the gay science, to the joyful wisdom, and let's look at what he is saying in what is called love. The lust of property and love, he says, what different associations each of these ideas evoke, and yet it might be the same impulse, twice named, on the one occasion disparaged from the standpoint of those already possessing and whom the impulse has attained something of repose and who are now apprehensive for the safety of their possession, on the other occasion viewed from the standpoint of the unsatisfied and thirsty and therefore glorified as good. Our love of our neighbor, is it not a striving after new property? And similarly, our love of knowledge, of truth, and in general, all the striving after novelties. We gradually become satiated with the old, the securely possessed, and again, stretch out our hands. Even the finest landscape in which we live for three months is no longer certain of our love, and any kind of more distant coast excites our covetousness. The possession, for the most part, becomes smaller through possessing. Notice, again, we're re-characterizing love here. We're re-characterizing the business of falling in love. And we're also re-characterizing this spiritualization of love. Nietzsche conflates the idea of love of property, that is, greed, possessiveness, and love. 
like love as love of wisdom or love as in loving another person for their own sake. What Nietzsche is basically suggesting here is the opposite of what Plato and Aristotle were doing by making these separations. Where Aristotle says, yes, you can you know love someone or want someone with a possessive motivation in mind, you can also love someone and want someone for higher reasons, for their own sake. Nietzsche says, are we sure that those are two different things? Are we sure we're not just doing the same thing? Are we sure that loving someone for their own sake isn't just a novelty, something else to possess? Are we sure that we don't just tell ourselves this in order to have some new experience, to experience some novel thing? Is our love of knowledge, our love of wisdom, what Plato would definitely have stressed as infinite and internal and totally valuable and spiritual and so on and so forth, could that also be just a lust for novelty? Are we always just loving knowledge in order to find some new knowledge, in order to find some new thing that excites and interests us? Are we ever actually wise for this love of knowledge? So he goes on a little further, when we see anyone suffering, we willingly utilize the opportunity then afforded to take possession of him. The, benefic the beneficent and sympathetic man, for example, does this. He also calls the desire for new possession awakened in him by the name of love and has enjoyment in it, as in a new acquisition suggesting itself to him. The love of the sexes, however, betrays itself most plainly as the striving after possession. The lover wants the unconditioned soul possession of the person longed for by him. He wants just as absolute power over her soul as over her body. He wants to be loved solely and to dwell and rule in the other soul as what is highest and most to be desired. When one considers that this means precisely to exclude all the world from a precious possession, a happiness, and an enjoyment, when one considers that the lover has in view the impoverishment and privation of all other rivals, and would like to become the dragon of his golden horde as the most inconsiderate and selfish of all conquerors and exploiters. Notice Nietzsche is saying this possessiveness, this will to desire someone, this will to be the one person that person desires, this too is possessiveness. This too is greed. This too is exclusionary, the act of a dragon sitting on his horde. And yet, Nietzsche acknowledges, this ferocious lust of property and injustice of sexual love should, should have been glorified and deified to such an extent at all times. He acknowledges that we have turned this into something transcendent too. We have said this is glorified where lust for property, greed, is not. Can one be greedy in love? Is one greedy by loving? By demanding that a person love you, are you in fact being greedy? And is this reciprocal love, this sort of saying, I will love you if you will love me, itself something possessive, greedy, selfish, exclusionary, something that cuts the world off from them? By contrast, he stresses... There is, of course, here and there on this terrestrial sphere, a kind of sequel to love, in which that covetous longing of two persons for one another has yielded to a new desire in covetousness, to a common, higher thirst for a superior ideal standing above them. But who knows this love? Who has experienced it? Its right name is friendship. So Nietzsche is now contrasting possessive love, erotic love, this love that is greed, this love that is propertarian, this love that turns humans into property, with friendship, which is shared, something that all people can have, something that everyone can experience in commonality. Now this is not the same friendship of Cicero, 
where it's, you know, two people are friends and they can never be friends with other people outside of them because they're sharing their lives and it's so intimate and so profound, etc., etc. Nietzsche is instead emphasizing that friendship by this light, by this description, by this explanation, is something that is shared with lots of people and lots of people can enjoy. This is a non-possessive friendship contrasted with a possessive love. This is a behavior that is egalitarian, that allows everybody to participate, where love is something exclusive that only a couple can participate in, and you experience joy from knowing that no one else can feel the same way, that no one else can experience the same benefit. This is, again, something that Nietzsche, I think, is giving us insight into, but notice here that he is getting a little bit more preachy about it. He is not entertaining the possibility of love as not property. He is entertaining only the possibility that love can be property, and instead raising up friendship as the obvious alternative. There is a little more danger here, I suppose. Now the next passage that I want to talk about is his chunk on female chastity, which we've talked about some of this in the past, especially with Rousseau, but he brings it out so well here that I can't help but sort of touch on it. This is some hardcore feminism that is going to definitely be sort of raised up and, and, and explored later by, by feminists, both in the 19th century and elsewhere. Um, there is something quite astonishing and extraordinary in the education of women of the higher class, he says. Indeed, there is perhaps nothing more paradoxical. All the world has agreed to educate them with as much ignorance as possible in eroticis, and to inspire their soul with a profound shame of such things, and the extremest impatience and horror at the suggestion of them. It is really here only that all the honor of woman is at stake. What would one not forgive them in other respects? But here they are intended to remain ignorant to the very backbone. They are intended to have neither eyes, ears, words, nor thoughts for this, their wickedness. Indeed, knowledge here is already evil. So again, like Wollstonecraft, he is emphasizing that women are very, very intentionally and very explicitly told not to know anything about love. They're restricted from knowing anything about love. The proper education of women restricts all knowledge of sexuality from them. And that this is somehow their honor. But Nietzsche turns it around. And then, to be hurled as with an awful thunderbolt into reality and knowledge with marriage, and indeed by him whom they most love and esteem, to have to encounter love and shame and contradiction, yea, to have to feel rapture, abandonment, duty, sympathy, and fright at the unexpected proximity of God and animal and whatever else besides, all at once, there in fact a psychic entanglement has been effected which is quite unequaled. Imagine a 19th century woman, schooled in her own chastity, told that everything that makes her important and worthwhile and honorable is the fact that she has totally forsworn her own sexuality, the fact that they refuse to educate her about her sexuality, the fact that they refuse to tell her anything about how sex actually works, and then, bam, on the night she is married, she is supposed to automatically and magically transform from this chaste, pure, honorable woman into a sex fiend for her husband, Nietzsche acknowledges, this is really sucky. This is absolutely abominable. Like, as much as we tend to think that women have it really rough now, imagine this situation, that for literally 
decades of your life, you have been told nothing else but avoid sex, avoid sex, avoid sex, and then you get married on the night of your marriage, you not only are immediately told, okay, now, immediately, now, have sex, and like it, and like it coming from the person who you care about most in the world, and P.S. he's going to expect this all the time, and no, it's not dishonorable anymore, whatever we told you before no longer counts for anything, like, that's impossible. The psychic entanglement that, a, that Nietzsche is referring to here is nuts. It is insane that our culture has insisted upon this. It is insane that women have been taught in this way and ex are expected to behave in this way. It is positively unthinkable. Our society is great for having disposed of this particular habit, where it has disposed of it. P.S. It hasn't entirely disposed of it, not just here but elsewhere. There are plenty of women out there who are very much struggling with their simultaneous dishonorable sexuality and necessity for sexuality. It's a mess. Can't even get into it here. Um, even the sympathetic curious curiosity of the wisest discerner of men does not suffice to divine how this or that woman gets along with the solution of this enigma and the enigma of this solution. What dreadful, far-reaching suspicions must awaken thereby in the poor, unhinged soul, and forsooth how the ultimate philosophy and skepticism of the woman casts anchor at this point. Afterwards, the same profound silence as before, and often even a silence to herself, a shutting of her eyes to herself. What trauma! This must involve, Nietzsche is getting at. And yet notice, he's sort of carefully introducing a style here, like this elevated style. Notice how he says, forsooth, or, you know, he, he uses this, the yay earlier. Like, he's very much suggesting that there is some kind of epic depth going on. There is an importance to this almost unholy juxtaposition of sexuality with unsexuality, chastity with sex, with sexual indulgence. Afterwards, the same profound silence as before, and often even a silence to herself, a shutting of her eyes to herself. Young wives on that account make great efforts to appear superficial and thoughtless. The most ingenious of them simulate a kind of impudence. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they affect not to even understand what is going on around them? Maybe they don't understand what's going on around them. Could they? Given this education, given this total shift in priorities, given this unworldly, you know, switch from one state to another, wives easily feel their husbands as a question mark to their honor and their children as an apology or atonement. They require children and wish for them in quite another spirit than a husband wishes for them. In short, one cannot be gentle enough towards a woman. Nietzsche is advising us to pity women, which is a very un-Nietzsche-like sentiment. Nietzsche is actually really nasty to women in a lot of his other passages, and he demeans them pretty easily. Like Even in this text, we get a couple of places where he's pretty much, you know, getting... Den or denigrating women for various ways. Like in, in Beyond Good and Evil, he has that line, in revenge and in love, woman is more barbarous than man. Like there's truth there, but he's not being nice about it, and he's not being sympathetic, and he's not being gentle the way that he's suggesting here in, in The Joyful Wisdom. What Nietzsche is showing us is this insight again. 
He is showing us that he understands the plight of women in this situation and how rotten it is for them. How, you know, their husbands are simultaneously their saviors from a chaste life, but also the violators of that chaste life. And how, how do you reconcile the fact that the person who you care about most is also the person who took away your virginity, which you were told was the thing that made you special, the thing that made you holy and good and virtuous and honorable. How do you square that as a woman? Therefore, take pity on them. Be gentle towards them. I also want to point out, just for a moment, because we are definitely running out of time at this point, um, in the How Each Sex Has Its Prejudice About Love, Nietzsche brings up that there is this fundamental distinction between the ways that men and women love, which is an idea that we're going to see borne out again by some of the feminist writers in the 20th century and elsewhere. Um, I find it to be a fairly interesting you know, observation here as well. Um, summed up by his line on page 147, woman gives herself and man takes her. Um, love for a woman is surrender. It is giving in oneself entirely to another, whereas for men, it is taking possession. It is being the lord of their life in the 19th century. Um, and Nietzsche is sort of stressing that this is wildly distinct, and therefore love, as we understand it, really has two different meanings, two radically opposed meanings, two meanings that cannot be, like, you know, squared with one another. Love is giving oneself or taking a person, depending on who you are. For a man, it's possession. For love, it, for women, it's being possessed. Um, it's notable that in the 20th century, we will have some feminist writers arguing effectively that um, man doesn't love. Like, men are incapable of love as a consequence. You know, men aren't loving properly because love is giving oneself. In another sense, one could easily ask, who does have the right of it? Which one is the correct form of love? Is it the possessive love, or is it the being possessed that is truly love, in a sense? Um, so just sort of be aware of that. Like, we're going to definitely touch on that more later. Um, the last passage that I do want to talk about, because, again, I think it's the last one that really has a lot of sort of insight before we get kind of weird, um, is the one from Thus Spake Zarathustra. And again, Thus Spake Zarathustra is structured as a sort of preachy text, and therefore I'm a little more tolerant of it here. Like, Nietzsche is definitely using a style and, and using technique to sort of, you know, downplay the, the preachiness that's going on here. Um, but I want to emphasize, you know, this too is important for philosophy, even if it is for not necessarily for good reasons. Um, notice in that second paragraph... You are young and wish for a child in marriage, but I ask you, are you a man entitled to wish for a child? Are you the victorious one, the self-conqueror, the commander of your senses, the master of your virtues? This I ask you. Or is it the animal in need that speak out of your wish, or loneliness, or lack of peace with you, yourself? Notice the distinction that Nietzsche is bringing up here, that there are two potential reasons that one might have children. Is it because you are great enough to warrant reproduction, that you, your, you know, personality, your being is something that you should, in fact, pass on to your offspring for the good of the species. Will you and your children be a benefit to humanity, in short? Or are you doing it out of instinct? And notice that Nietzsche is just posing the question. He is not 
you know, necessarily even saying that it is, these are uh, motivations opposed to one another, the way that Schopenhauer does. The way that Schopenhauer would say, well, if you think that you're benefiting humanity, you're just kidding yourself, and really you're just looking for sex because instinct. Nietzsche is saying, no, you could have either one of these reasons. But importantly, these two reasons yield two different results for Nietzsche. And he stresses the absurdity of marriage later on. Worthy I deem this man and right for the sense of the earth, but when I saw his wife, the earth seemed to me a house for the senseless. This one went out like a hero in quest of truths, and eventually he conquered a little dressed-up lie, his marriage, he called it. This one was reversed and chose choosily, but all at once he spoiled his company forever, his marriage, he calls it. All of these sort of aphorisms imply that marriage is a lie. That the wife is a deception because she is deceiving herself, because she has been trained to deceive herself and to deceive her, her man in some sense, and that man is deceiving himself and thinking that this is somehow transcendent and virtuous, etc., etc. The one thing that I think he sort of gives away here, which is sort of typical to Thus Spake Zarathustra, is when he starts talking about the overman here. On the one hand, he's saying, okay, so you want to have children, you want to get married so you can pass on your virtues to the next generation, or so you can fulfill your instincts. Most of these versions of marriage, it seems to be a revelation that it was just instinct all along, and really virtue had nothing to do with it. But notice in that last paragraph on the page, but even your best love is merely an ecstatic parable and a painful ardor. It is a torch that should light up higher paths for you. Over and beyond yourselves you shall love one day. Thus learn first to love. And for that you went to drain the bitter cup of your love. Bitterness lies in the cup of even the best love. Thus it arouses longing for the overman. Thus it arouses your thirst, creator. Thirst for the creator, an arrow, and longing for the overman. Tell me, my brother, is this your will to marriage? Holy, I call such a will and such a marriage. Thus spoke Zarathustra. A couple things here. First off, notice the way that Nietzsche characterizes love and characterizes marriage and characterizes this whole business as bitterness. Bitterness lies in the cup of even the best love. He's stressing this largely because he is sort of going back on what he said before, where love is giving yourself in possession to another person. Nietzsche recognizes that for both man and woman, this is the case. You are essentially giving up some of your freedom, and that is bitter. But notice that Nietzsche says there is a situation where that is the right thing to do, and that is when you are trying to produce the overman. It arouses longing for the overman. And indeed, if your thirst for the creator and longing for the overman is your will to marriage, then I call it holy. This is a good reason to marry, a good reason to reproduce, because you're going to produce something greater than yourself, the overman, the superman, as it's frequently translated. This also reeks of social Darwinism. And I want to just sit on this for a moment and draw it out because it's a huge idea in the 19th century, it's a huge idea in the 20th century, and Nietzsche is going to be at the foundation of, dare I say it, the freaking Nazi party. Nietzsche suggests, here and elsewhere, that yes, self-negation can be a good thing when it serves the greater needs of the species. 
When, like Schopenhauer, you are reproducing specifically in order to pass on your genetic code and create a perfect match going forward. Schopenhauer even describes it as, you know, you're finding the perfect the person who will be the perfect complement to you, whose genetic makeup will take your genetic makeup and turn it into something truly great and better than both of you individually. Nietzsche is going a step further. He is saying that the overman is upon us, and he's echoing this throughout the Thus Spake Zarathustra. We only see a little bit of it here, but it's all over the place throughout his later thought. Human beings are about to be replaced, Nietzsche says, by something greater than them. They are evolving. They are evolving into something more than human. And we are supposed to facilitate that evolution. And thus, here he is saying, yes, let your love be bitter if it is for the purposes of this overman, for the purposes of this new species, this greater race. If, in fact, you're doing your marriage, doing your reproduction for that reason, I bless it. I call it holy. It will usher in the new age. But what I want to stress is that this is some of the most loathsome thinking in the history of the human race. Shaw is going to be the one who really draws this out. I get so grumpy with him all the time whenever I read Man and Superman in one of my other classes. But Nietzsche is definitely alluding to this idea. Hitler is going to draw this out. He is going to say, we, the Germans, the Third Reich, we are the superior race, the highest form of human beings, and therefore we need to reproduce, and we need to produce the Overman, we need to usher in the next Reich, we need to usher in the next stage, we need to cull ourselves, weed out the weak, weed out the inferior bloodlines, the inferior races, the inferior genetic material, and instead produce a proud, blonde, blue-eyed species of uber-Germans, of overmen, of supermen in Nietzsche's tradition. Now, Nietzsche is not going that far, but he's really susceptible to this kind of thinking. And a lot of people are going to read Nietzsche as they read Darwin poorly. And they're going to come to the conclusion that, yes, we need to build a eugenic state. And we need to weed out weak human beings. And we need to turn them into something greater. And this is so despicable, so diabolical, so pernicious, so responsible for some of the most horrific atrocities of both the 19th and 20th centuries that I cannot, cannot teach this passage without this caveat. This is bullshit. There is no eugenic project in the history of human beings that has not turned into some kind of racial cleansing or genocide. It just doesn't happen. The fact of the matter is, whatever the next human being is going to be, whatever the super people or second race of man or whatever you want to call it, whatever it is that we are evolving into is going to be, there's no way on God's green earth that we're going to get there by controlling it. Like, we used to do genetic breeding and careful selection. We used to have all of those nobles with all of their, you know, inbreeding and stuff. And what it produced was anemia and interesting genetic diseases and a whole bunch of really deformed nobility. It doesn't work. Yes, maybe there's some more equitable way of doing it. I don't even want to think about it. Because at the end of the day, what that implies is that we get to say what are good and bad characteristics about human beings. And that necessarily causes us to start ranking people, to sort of turn people into, you know, a scale of 1 to 10. And by that logic, the 1 should be killed off and the 10s should get all of the sex all of the time. 
And that's just so anathema to basic human dignity, to basic human equality. Some of these principles which are so important that I just can't stand it, can't abide it, cannot see the rationality of this. It is, on its face, logical. We do this with dogs. We do this with cows. We do this with livestock of all kinds. We do this to the natural world on a regular basis. But if we turn that towards ourselves, what we are fundamentally saying is that there are decent swaths of human beings who are not allowed to live, who should be weeded out, who do not deserve life. And that is seriously fucked up. So I am not going to let Nietzsche lie on that one. This is my fundamental beef with Nietzsche. I get why people like him. I get why people think he's insightful. Like I said, I was just praising him 20 minutes ago about some really awesome insights and some really awesome observations. But what I want to emphasize is that anytime he gets on his high horse talking about the Superman, talking about what human beings are supposed to be, talking about what, you know, people are supposed to be like and, and what good people and strong people are versus weak people and the, the lower people, no, I'm not buying it. And I very much encourage you to stay the fuck away from that kind of thinking. By all means, read some Nietzsche. Definitely read some of his early stuff. But be really careful with him. There is no philosopher more dangerous, in my opinion, besides some of the really nutty ones who just threw their lot in with Hitler or the social Darwinists or people of that ilk, none of which have survived to this day. Nobody reads Mein Kampf in a philosophy class. Nobody. Nor should they. Yes, it is philosophy. It is terrible philosophy. It is self-destructive philosophy. It is philosophy that just denigrates and demoralizes and turns us into less than we are. If there is some goal that we should be aspiring to, it's not Nietzsche's goal of eugenic perfection. It is not some kind of perfect breeding system. We would do a lot better to understand what virtue actually is before we start deciding which ones to allow and which ones to reject. It's going to take longer than we've already spent. Anyway, sorry that I get grumpy about this, but this is seriously messed up and I won't tolerate it. Let's talk about Kierkegaard in the last ten minutes of our class or so. And I think Kierkegaard actually is probably my favorite of the writers. Like, this was... Reading this after Schopenhauer and Nietzsche was like a breath of fresh air. And part of that is because I'm a Christian and I'm not going to, you know, like, mince words about it. I'm not going to pretend that I don't have a bias on this one. But at the very least, I am really struck by Kierkegaard's clear-thinking distinction here, which is really the only thing that we need to truly draw out here. At the end of the day, what Kierkegaard is saying in this passage from Works of Love is there is a fundamental distinction between the love of the poets and the love of the Christians. And by the love of the poets, we mean both erotic love and friendship. Kierkegaard lumps those two together for his purposes here and distinguishes them from loving your neighbor. This is the key distinction that Kierkegaard wants to make. Um, and he wants to stress that both erotic love and friendship are fundamentally preferential. And by being preferential, they are, at the end of the day, self-love. They are selfish. 
That's not to say that they can't also be, you know, interested in others. Like, Kierkegaard definitely considers the, the best arguments presented by the ancients, like Aristotle, where he says that loving a friend is, you know, loving another person for their own sake. But Kierkegaard also stresses that we are, at the end of the day, you know, as Aristotle acknowledges, turning this person into another self, like, basically building them into our identity. And therefore, loving these people is an extension of loving oneself. Yes, it is selfless in one sense, but it is still selfish in another. By contrast, Kierkegaard is, ex is, su is suggesting a radical interpretation of loving your neighbor. One that does not have any preference whatsoever. And in fact, he emphasizes, um, he, he stresses that like loving your neighbor has nothing to do with preferential treatment. Um, loving your neighbor is, on its face, an act of self-renunciation, an act of self-abasement. As he puts it on page 242, the neighbor, however, has never been presented as an object of admiration. Christianity doesn't teach love your neighbor because they deserve it, or love your neighbor because they are good, or love your neighbor because, you know, you see yourself in them, or love your neighbor because you like them for some reason. No, it just says love your neighbor indifferently irrespective of who they are, what they've accomplished. And Christianity emphasizes this is exactly why you love your neighbor. God doesn't care about you because you are good. God cares about you because he cares about you. What Kierkegaard is emphasizing here is that for the poets, love and friendship is something that happens to you. It is the product of fortune or of fate. It is something that you get. It is something that, you know, you get to enjoy. Your friends, your, your loved ones, they come into your life from outside without your control, and you get to experience this, this sort of benevolence, this sort of joy of having them in your life, of making them a part of you, and therefore you're lavishing gifts on them and you're treating them well, is in fact, you know, a, an extension of yourself, an extension of, you know, giving to yourself, of receiving unto yourself. For Christianity, that's not at all the motivation. Where the pagans are practicing a love that is fateful or fortunate, Christians are practicing love as an ethical command. You are to love your neighbor, Kierkegaard emphasize, emphasizes. Um, you are to do this because God told you to do this, and you are going to do this because you love God and because you are worried that God you know, loves you and you need to reciprocate in some way. You do it because God loves you. Now, Kierkegaard is emphasizing this is not easy. Like, he doesn't say that he does this. He stresses this is an, something to aspire to, something that is impossible to achieve, something that is an ideal to reach, much as Kant was talking about, you know, friendship back in his essay. In fact, I suspect the two are really surprisingly close together here. Kant is talking about friendship as this ideal of morality, as something that isn't to be achieved, but is something that we aspire to, because if everybody gives to each other, we all end up getting the same in the end. Kierkegaard doesn't have this secular bent. Kierkegaard is unapologetically Christian here. This is one of Kierkegaard's characteristics. Um, most of his writing is unapologetically Christian, and surprisingly, the Christian apology in its own right. Um, but Kierkegaard is very much stressing that, again, it has nothing to do with you. It is selflessness in the real sense. The pagans were not selfless. They admired characteristics of other people, wanted to be close to them out of, the, out of a personal self-driven desire, and therefore fulfilled that desire by spending time with this person. 
For Kierkegaard, however, there is no preferential treatment. Everyone is your neighbor. If you say, is that my neighbor? The answer is always yes. And therefore, he stresses, you know, if you are sitting in your room praying and you open your door, the first person you run into will be the person you are supposed to love. You don't need to ask about it. You don't need to wait for fortune to drop somebody in your lap. You can get to work on it immediately. Because, again, it is an ethical command, not something that you experience, not a passion, not a preference. You have no control over or you have no control over love when it strikes you. You have total control over your self-renunciation, over loving one's neighbor. Now, I didn't give nearly as much biological or biographical information about Kierkegaard as the others. I probably should, because I want to sort of emphasize where Kierkegaard stands in relation to Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and the rest of the thinkers going on here. Um, thus far, I've emphasized that the 19th century has kind of largely been an atheistic time. That this is the age of Schleiermacher questioning the Bible, and this is the age of, you know, all of these various naturalistic scientists offering alternative ex explanations of various worldly phenomena than what the Bible had to offer. This is the age of the discussion of evolution. This is the age where, you know, Christianity is losing its sheen. This is, as Nietzsche describes, when God dies. Um, God is dead, we killed him, and our culture, our history has no place for him anymore. I want to stress that Kierkegaard is reacting to this. Kierkegaard is a philosopher in his own right, following in the tradition of Hegel, of all people. He follows the sort of Hegelian dialectic, you know, like Marx talking about conflict. Kierkegaard is talking about conflict as well, but the conflict for Kierkegaard is almost always between pagan secular philosophy and Christian philosophy. In the philosophical fragments, in Fear and Trembling and Repetition, in, you know, this passage from Works of Love, even in The Sickness Unto Death, um, Kierkegaard is emphasizing that the truth of Christianity, as he sees it, is radically opposed to the truth of the secular world, to the truth of paganism. They are incompatible. Remember how I stressed earlier in the 18th century when Hume was stressing that, you know, Christianity had to be built on faith alone, and this was going to mark this sort of shift, and Christianity was going to be increasingly divorced from rationality. You know, where Aquinas said that the truth of reason and the truth of the philosophers is one and the same as the truth of the Bible. They go hand in hand together, all one truth. Kierkegaard is saying exactly the opposite. Kierkegaard is the peak of Christianity as irrationality, as absurdity. Christianity as something that defies human reason. And in fact, he stresses, you know, as much as people say that this business of loving one's neighbor is this high aspiration, he says, you can say that, but you can only say it carefully. The fact of the matter is, loving one's neighbor offends human sensibility. It makes us revolt, revolted at the idea. This is unnatural to us. It is natural for us to make relationships, to love our family, to find people who are similar to us and love them, to make connections with people exclusive of everyone else. It is totally unnatural for us to love our neighbor, love our enemy, love everyone indiscriminately, independently of who they are. Kierkegaard stresses this is a defiance of the truth that philosophy teaches. And as Kierkegaard emphasizes elsewhere, that's what makes Christianity profound. 
Kierkegaard takes Christianity incredibly seriously, specifically because it makes no sense, or makes no philosophical sense, or makes no secular sense, or looks absurd. In fact, Kierkegaard very much stresses the absurdity of Christianity. And this is going to be one of the many sort of trains of thought that is going to lead us to 20th century philosophy. All three of the thinkers we've talked about today, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard, are all important inspirations for existentialism and for the existential perspective that is going to sort of grow and define the 20th century in philosophy. Instead of idolizing reason, like we did in the 18th century in the Enlightenment, instead of idolizing passion like we did in the 19th century with Goethe and the Romantics, the 20th century is very much going to acknowledge and embrace the absurdity of existence, the fact that nothing about life makes sense. Kierkegaard is saying that Christianity doesn't make sense, and that nothing about Christianity makes sense, and that this is a good thing. Likewise, Nietzsche is stressing that so much of our society is illogical or irrational, is built on illusions, and therefore needs to be reevaluated, and that we need to seize control of our lives, like take it back from these supposedly rational institutions that govern us, these supposedly eternal power structures that are in fact like put in place to, to make us you know, subservient to them. Nietzsche says, instead, embrace absurdity. And this is going to be something that, again, the existentialists run away with, as we'll see with Sartre in the next reading. But for next time, we're primarily going to focus on Freud. Because once again, this is a huge impetus going forward. And while this is going to retread a lot of the ground that we discussed today, especially everything that we talked about with Schopenhauer, where it's like, you know, all of our impulses boil down to sexuality and that all of our rationality and all of our higher motivations are at the end of the day just, you know, window dressing, distraction from what it is that really motivates us, Freud is going to bring that to its natural conclusion, codify it, and turn it into something that we as 20th century and 21st century folks cannot live without. This is going to be one of the fundamental assumptions of our philosophy. So it's time to finally look at what Freud does to love um, and how he turns all of human accomplishment into, at the end of the day, sexual impulse. So I look forward to talking to, to you about it next time.